Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, um, you look um, verklempt. Uh, well, uh, we're, we're, this is now the fourth podcast in two weeks we've recorded, J.D. It's true. This is uh, last week we had a take two of um, of our podcast because we had technical problems, and we're having a take two of our podcast this week because we had technical problems, which I which I think you think are my fault, and which may well be my fault. But at any rate, uh, they're probably my fault. No, um, no one, no one so. can say for sure. I I don't know. <laughs> hey, everybody! Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and pillar editor in chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined now that he's been able to say it that I um, that I have uh, caused us to do some extra re-recording. Uh, he will be in a much more congenial disposition. My podcasting partner and pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, how are you? I'm I'm doing fine, J.D. I'm <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm yeah. Life is great. Um, <laughs> You're ticked. So Ed's ticked because last week we. Um, we we went about four minutes into the show and I realized I wasn't recording and uh, and so this you know so it was kind of frustrating because we had to do it again and then this week we went like twenty minutes into the show and I realized again I wasn't recording and I hit record so it's a technical problem that I'm going to have to figure out um, using our um, our advanced podcast diagnostic diagnostic technical problem solving software I suppose but I, I don't know maybe it's my fault but I'm pretty I'm pretty freaking sure I hit record and we did like twenty minutes of the show and Ed is. Ticked. I'm. I no. I'm. A, I'm a little frustrated, but you know, into every life, JD, a little rain <laughs> must fall. And if the biggest complaint I have is that we have to record the podcast over again, that's okay. We have a podcast to record, and for we that, do, I am we grateful. do. We do have a podcast to record. That is very, very true, and uh, and and that's true. So thank you for saying that. And uh, yeah. So um, how you doing, man? I I am doing okay. Yeah. I I am. Interested to know how your trip to Canada went. <laughs> uh, you would think that I went to Canada. So uh, No, uh, I know week- you went to Canada because every time I tried to call you, a very sweet Canadian voice would come and say, the, the number you're trying to reach can't be reached, eh? <laughs> try and, I, you know, try again later when there's service try, or something, yeah, eh? Yeah, try again later. I, I was definitely within, I think, Canadian cell phone networks. But if you listened to the show last week or you read um, PillarCatholic.com, you know that I have been doing some reporting over the past couple of days, or I had been doing some reporting in the early part of this week from the great um, North Star State, from the very far northern reaches of Minnesota, the Diocese of Crookston, Minnesota. And I do think that while I was there, I was from time to time kind of getting patched into Canadian cell phone networks because weird things were happening with my phone like the entire time that I was there. We 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 had it we found it very difficult to have phone conversations, didn't we? We did. It was um communication was difficult. Um mm-hmm. but I mean that's fun. Uh, that's part of life in the field, I suppose. Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah. So I was there, you know, if you if you listen to the show, you know that the Diocese of Crookston, Minnesota is the first um diocese in the United States where a bishop was subject to an investigation under the provisions of Vos Estes Lex Mundi, which was the 2019 uh thing that the Pope promulgated um, to essentially um, address like investigations of either omissions or commissions of um, 
um, misconduct, abuse, or um, or omissions of, I suppose, responsibility by diocesan bishops in office. So the Bishop of Crookston, Minnesota, was the first bishop to be subject to a Vos Estes um, investigation. And then in April, he resigned from his position, like 18 months into the investigation, he resigned from his position as Bishop of Crookston. And in April, when he resigned, because I had been covering that whole to-do, um, Lafayre Crookston, since the summer of 2018. So in um, April, when the bishop resigned, I said that it was my plan to go to the installation mass of the next bishop of Crookston because it would kind of close out my coverage of Lafayre Crookston. And uh, and so in October, Bishop Andrew Cousins, auxiliary bishop of the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis, was appointed to be the new bishop of Crookston. And on Monday, he was installed as such. And indeed, I was there. I was in the room doing some reporting and coverage from Crookston. And, um, and the way I heard it told, it wasn't just your coverage that you were closing out while you were up there. <laughs> I, I, I heard the stories of a hotel bar that maybe you you locked up a couple of nights. I... Well, I mean, when you are in the Diocese of Crookston, Minnesota, and there are any number of other, you know, folks who work in and around the church who you know, you know, it is only natural that you might have uh, a couple of frosty or fermented beverages and catch up. And the weird thing about the, the the bars in the Diocese of Crookston, Minnesota, is they close at like 10.30. So it's almost impossible not to close them out. I see. So any any text messages I may have had purporting to have seen you doing jello shots with the nuncio, I should discount. <laughs> I, that, that You're I saying think, that didn't happen. I don't think the nuncio would consume jello under any circumstances whatsoever. I don't know. He's French. He's presumably an Epicurean and open to, you know, new culinary new delights. New culinary experiences. That's right. I suppose if it were molecular gastronomy, Jello or something like that. Well, or, Jello, mean, is a, Jello is, as I understand it, practically a food group in Minnesota. Yeah, the, so the, I, you know. No one served me Jello. I, I didn't see any Jello. So if Jello was a food group in Minnesota, I, I, I did. I was not aware of that during my time there. Fair enough. Um, but it was. Uh, it was an opportunity to cover the, the the next chapter in a story of importance for the, the entire national church because um, the question of kind of how the Holy See will respond to allegations of um, omissions or acts of misconduct on the part of bishops, you know, kind of runs through Crookston in a certain way. And so we saw there a long investigation. We saw a bishop who was um, not, not um, removed from office but was uh, allowed to resign even after effectively admitting in depositions having um, committed both civil, civil and um, canonical crimes by failing to report allegations of abuse, uh, we saw him allowed to resign. And um, and then we saw a bishop appointed who has thus far really sort of taken the bull by the horns in addressing, hey, here's what the history, you know, here's what the recent history of this diocese is, and here's what the wounds are. And, you know, as he said at his installation mass, in Christ, with Christ, and through Christ, we are going to um, address those things and seek reconciliation with the Lord and reconciliation with one another, and then proclaim that reconciliation as missionaries. So that may well be the template um, that we'll see, you know, both the, the question of a bishop sort of resigning without facing canonical charges, but then also bishops who follow resigned bishops, you know, leaning into addressing that. They may well, That may well sort of prove to be a template that we'll see as other bishops are now under investigation for, you know, alleged acts of um, omission or cover-up or misconduct or whatever well, in office as well. Obviously, I... I don't hope to see a situation where we have many bishops being obliged to depart office um, following Vosesti's investigations, because that would not be a sign of particular health for the life of the church. But if they must, um, I would hope it wouldn't be following resignations for reasons previously discussed in this podcast. And if they must go, I would hope that a similar 
example for their successors would be followed. I, I well, absolutely not agree a with sign that. of not a sign of health in the sense that like um, it, it does not say something about what has been the health of the church if a number of bishops are on you know are under investigation for effectively failing in one way or another to fulfill the mandates or obligations of their office. But that they are under investigation, that there are investigations. Oh, no, no, no. yeah. That, that, that is indeed If it is necessary, that it is happening is a good thing. Yes. Get, getting health, right? I mean, yes. um, most especially, you know, talking to priests of Crookston this weekend, um, you know, over the time of the installation, so many of them saying, you know, we had seen issues with our bishop, uh, issues of governance, issues of um, personality, these kinds of things for a long time, and, and had no where to turn because... A, a priest is, um, you know, a, has promised obedience to his bishop, and um, and, and a, the bishop is supposed to be the father uh, uh, of his priests, and uh, and so not having a sense of where to turn um, can be a, a hardship, a, a real hardship for a presbyter who sees things that are real problems, and then obviously for people who may be victims of the bishop's misconduct or um, or grave omissions or whatever as well, um, and so. Uh, that there is, at least in principle, in Vosestis Lex Mundi and Come Un Andre and these things, which exist to varying degrees in reality, but exist in principle, is um, yeah an indication of at least a, 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 an intention towards being uh, healthy in those ways. No, I would, yeah, I would agree with that. Better yeah. that it not be necessary, but if it is necessary, better right. that it be done. Yeah, indeed. You know, one thing that I was looking at too, I don't know, <laughs> while I was in um, Crookston, I was just thinking about kind of how does a bishop get started? A diocesan bishop gets started, especially in a place that is that has had a lot of problems. And um, and I was looking at something I haven't looked at a, at in a while. Um, you know, before I was a journalist, I I worked in the Archdiocese of Denver, and then um, when Denver's auxiliary bishop, bishop Jim Conley, became bishop of Lincoln, Nebraska, I sort of went with him and, and helped him. And I was in kind of his early meetings when he was appointed a bishop of of of, um, of, of Lincoln. And, you know, it's like drinking from a fire hose for a new bishop because he has to learn about kind of the state of the presbyterate, the state of the schools, the state of finances, the state of perhaps litigation, the state of the buildings. He's got to learn everybody's name. I mean, um, it's just a, you know, it's it's like drinking from a fire hose of information. And in the context of that, he has to sort of make decisions about what he's going to do uh, and what his priorities are going to be. And, uh, and, and there's actually a document from the Congregation for Bishops called Apostolorum... Um, Apostolorum. <laughs> I think you think you this is a game, but I, I honestly cannot. Apostolorum successor. Apostolorum. There is a document called um, <laughs> the Directory for the Pastoral Ministry of Bishops. Um, Coward. <laughs> which begins by discussing the successors of the apostles. Apostolorum successores. Um, and, uh, and it, it's, it's a really interesting document, like, <laughs> not that we have a vocation to the Episcopate, but just kind of what the church sees as central to, in a very practical way, it's effectively a handbook for being a bishop, a diocesan bishop. Um, and, and so it really lays out sort of relatively concretely what a diocesan bishop should do. Have, have you, have you read it? I have not. Um, I have not, like you, worked in chanceries or or helped a new bishop sort of get started. So it's it's not something I've I've found the need to peruse. I, I was aware that such a document existed. Um, I'm aware of such things as baby bishop school and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I haven't I haven't dug into it. And uh, I will I will take the recommendation and I will have a leaf through it. Bishops, if you are um, if you are an Episcopal listener to the Pillar Podcast, or if you <laughs> are a presbyteral listener to the Pillar Podcast, who perceives that you may have a vocation. To the sacred episcopate, if you, if you 
effectively discern that. It's, it's, it's just a, it's You'd just be a really one of maybe of, three in the country who has. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, but it's an interesting read, and there are parts of it, actually, that it seems to me could effectively serve as more or less an examination of conscience for diocesan bishops. So it's a, yeah, so I've just been reading it. Well, that's that's cool. Yeah. What have you been reading, Ed? Um, well, I haven't been reading, J.D. I've been watching. I was uh, I spent my weekend nerding out on the Perlaska tapes like any normal person would. <laughs> Tell our listeners what the par- what you the you tape. are you mock. I just I, just the notion that any normal person spent their weekend nerding out on the Perlaska tapes is obviously you know ridiculous. Um, you know what they should because there but, is a lot of garbage out there on tv <laughs> there's a lot of garbage out there in the podcasting Wait, world the guy who watches is love is blind yeah i know there's a lot of garbage out there because i watch it i know i speak for i speak of what i know jd you speak of what you know huh? and i tell you if you are looking for gripping true crime or car crash reality television and you can, speak italian no, no, no. There's um, there's a there's a highlight reel about a tw- about a twenty minute highlight reel that Correa della Sera put out that has English subtitles. So oh, it's really? even there oh, for the viewing well. impaired. We'll put a note. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. But Ed, tell our listeners what the Perlaska tapes are and why you've been listening to them. Um, well, for anyone who is not up to speed, uh, the if you like the star witness uh, in the Vatican financial trial, uh, gave several interviews to prosecutors and investigators over the last two years, which were all recorded when the trial kicked off at the end of July. Defense attorneys were demanding that the full tapes be handed over uh, in the sort of discovery phase of the trial. The prosecution was saying, no, we can't hand over everything. We can't hand over the full recordings because there's stuff in here that is uh, pertains to ongoing investigations. And, you know, sometimes he goes off topic and is talking about things that don't have anything to do with the, the trial. And if we give these defense lawyers these tapes, they'll leak them to the press, and that would be extremely harmful to the conduct of the trial, and it could harm other people's reputations unjustly when he's talking off topic and things like this. And they've been arguing back and forth about this for months. In November, the judges said, no, you you have to hand the whole things over. And they did, minus, I think it was something like 15 minutes total that they took out because it said this concerns live investigations into other possible crimes, and we're just not doing that. Um, but the rest, hours and hours of footage was handed over, and... Lo and behold, they leaked almost immediately. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. Who would have guessed? But, uh, you know, while I deplore the whoever it was who decided that this was an acceptable way to conduct their business, I nevertheless, it's not going to stop me watching them. And watch them I did, J.D. And this, if you are like me, up to your nose in the details of the Vatican financial trial, this is amazing stuff. He talks about everything. Um he, t- he affirms something that I have said right the way along the line, because one of the things um, I often get asked um, about the Vatican financial trials, you know, well, were these guys on the take? You know, where's where's their secret, you know, stash? How much did they get paid in the Secretary of State to, you know, approve all this stuff? And I have said right the way along the line that it's not my um, understanding or even my expectation that necessary clerical officials at the Secretary of State would have, you know, been on the take, so to speak. Um, that's just not my read of the situation. And Perlaska sort of comes out swinging at one point saying, look, you can accuse us of everything, naivety, stupidity, uh, lack of professionalism, lack of due diligence, you know, all sorts of things. But you can't say that we were on the take. You know, nobody was, you know, <laughs> cash and checks for this. And I mean, it's just it, it's compelling viewing um, at one point for people who are deep track level 
up to speed on the Vatican financial trial. There's a great part where the investigators and Perlasca are talking about basically a cache of gold and silver coins that they found in the Secretary of State, like 12,000 gold coins. No, that's just a Masonic myth. No, no, no. No, no, no. They they found found literally boxes of gold coins just in the Secretary of State offices. And they said, well, where the heck did all this come from? He said, oh, yeah, it's a funny story. The IOR, which is a Vatican bank, um, and it it looks like a castle and has sort of vaults and everything. Apparently, they just found these in the basement one day in the IOR and called up the Secretary and said, I... We, we found boxes and boxes of gold and silver coins, which we think are yours. Could you come get them, please? Because we don't know what to do with them. And then they just are you them. Yeah. I mean, this stuff is just, can we say batshit crazy on the podcast? I don't know. I um, think, I mean, it's our show. It's our show. And I don't want to, like, trigger a censor warning or anything. But anyway, it. I mean, it's just nuts. And what's really funny is, like, they just sort of, you know, roll Wait, over this in the tape. can you explain the gold coin thing to me? In, uh, can you explain the gold coin thing to me very carefully? The, uh, I, they, uh, again, you're, you're picking up a conversation in media rest watching these tapes, but they are talking about boxes of thousands. I think 12,000, I'm going from memory here, coins, gold and silver coins, like minted Vatican gold coins with like the face of Paul the sixth on them in some cases Uh and stuff like uh that, that they just found in the offices. And they said, what's, what's all this about? And they said, they, we found it. They insane. found it in the bank vaults of the IOR and they didn't know what to do with it. They thought they were ours. So we just sent somebody down there to move them up to the office. I, that's insane. That's it it insane. is completely insane. And what's the thing is they just kind of roll over it in the tapes. But and here's the funny thing that I would like to see some more reporting on. And if I can get a hold of sufficient details, I'll do it myself because, you know, if you want something done right. Um, but deep track level followers of this little soap opera will remember that Fabrizio Tirabassi, the lay official at the Secretary of State, who, uh, let's just say some have suggested was the the sort of ultimate inside man in this whole financial scandal. Um, mm-hmm. At a certain point, they were serving search and seizure warrants on him, issued by the Vatican, but enforced by Italian magistrates and with the help of um, financial police in Italy. And they raided one of his homes because he's, despite making below minimum wage as a Vatican civil servant, has multiple homes. Um, and when they raided his homes to seize documents and laptops and things, they found hundreds of thousands of euros in cash in shoeboxes, as well as troves of coins, gold coins and silver coins. And they seized all this, but they actually ended up having to hand it back to them because the terms of the warrant were only for documentation, not for money. Oh Basically, but everyone at the time just sort of waved it away. It's like, oh, just show. There's a perfectly innocent explanation. Like his dad owns a jewelry and antique shop. I'm sure it was, you know, that's where he got it from. It's like, well, hang on. If there's thousands of gold coins literally lying around the hallways of the Secretary of State and a guy under investigation and having been formally charged with, you know, fraud and embezzlement at the Secretary of State happens to be in possession of a butt ton of antique gold and silver coins. Like, does anyone want to look into that? I did. Yeah, I, it's just it's like I said. This is such compelling viewing. I want all of. I, I'm. I we'll put it in the show notes, but I kind of want to watch it now too. And also, I'm a little bit frustrated because we have been to the Secretary of State, and I didn't find any gold coins for us to have. Yeah, but we were in the showrooms, buddy. We weren't in the offices. Yeah, we haven't been in the back offices. I suppose I, that's I, true. I, that's I, where you know, it's just in my mind. Like they, you know, that's where they keep the gold. That yeah. just sounds like a Masonic conspiracy theory. They literally and are keeping the gold there. I did. Yeah, I just that's couldn't. crazy. 
I was watching them like just discuss. It. I mean, but there's also like there's moments of high comedy as well because at a certain point, Perlasca is kicking off about because um, no sooner did it come out that he had sort of turned state's evidence and was walking prosecutors through all of this, then people started leaking about him and saying that you know well he was corrupted on the take and he took all kinds of gifts from uh, Enrico Crasso, uh, former. Vatican financial advisor and investment manager of the Centurion Fund and Elton John movie fame. Um, and Perlaska like goes off on the goes, I have people have been saying I was bought and paid for by Crosso. Well, he did give me gifts and here they are. And he puts this like crappy briefcase on the table, like a laptop case. He said he gave me a laptop case that doesn't even fit my computer. He gave me a watch, which he holds up and it's still his box. And it's a swatch. Which, frankly, if someone tried to bribe me with a watch, I'm not saying it wouldn't work. But if you handed me a swatch, I'd consider it an insult. Oh, yeah, you would be really... Like, a crappy quartz one, which he even, like, said, still in the box, ready for re-gifting. Well, that's at least considerate. Yeah, I know. What's the... uh, There was something else that he gave him that I just thought was so... Oh, an iPad. And he said, this is all I got from apart from he gave me two tickets to the opera once. <laughs> it's like, and he even says, like, you know, can a man be bought for so little? You've got to be kidding me. Yeah, but for Swatch, as yeah, it were. but for a quartz right. watch, give right. me a break. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. if it was, a, I mean, fine. If they're, if he's handing over, a you know, a Vacher and Constantine with a perpetual calendar and chime function, you know, there's, I, I'd look twice. But, you know, a Swatch on a plastic band, give me a break. Yeah. So I mean, these these are the kinds of wonderful. Del- I mean, there's other stuff in there about Betchu and envelopes of cash, and you know, all kinds of stuff. Your your friend Chichi Maragna uh, makes an appearance in there. There's you know, oh, it's it, it's just so much fun. So there's all that. That's what I was doing this weekend while you were you know while you were hitting the bars of Crookston. So tell us, Ed, like what. Tell us, like we're not you, um, what the next date on the calendar is for the Vatican finance trial, and what what some of the next steps will be that are that are in the in the works. Well, we're still in the pre-trial phase, as yeah. the mm-hmm. chief magistrate Giuseppe Pignatoni remarked the last time they met. If we ever get out of this into the actual trial, this is going on interminably. But the next pre-trial hearing is scheduled for December. Excuse me, fourteenth. That's and next week. That is next week. Um, they, it was supposed, they were supposed to meet this week, but they delayed it for a week. And the mm-hmm. last motions that were filed were, again, to dismiss all the charges and basically throw the entire process out as invalid. And the most recent argument is because – And so the judge of, has to rule on that on the 14th? That, that is the expectation, yes. Okay. Um, and the most recent submission, which triggered, I would say, uh, interest in the Perlaska tapes in an acute way is one of the exchanges concerns Pope Francis's involvement in and awareness of – a, shall we say, extra contractual payment to Mr. Gianluigi Torzi at the time when he was allegedly extorting okay, the heck out of the Holy See for control of a building they'd already paid 350 million euros for because he was holding it hostage through a share restructuring of his Luxembourg holding company. I okay, think, explain this again. Um, well, so- I, I don't want to explain the mechanics of the thing too much because that will take up a ton of time. No, no, no. Just big picture the Pope Francis part. The guy accused of basically extorting the Holy See for control of the building they bought, while he was in the process of extorting the Holy See, allegedly, Mm -hmm. had a private audience with Pope Francis the day after Christmas of 2018. Now, this mm-hmm. is not new news. We've known this. We've since, known this the whole time. We've yeah. known this the whole time. We've talked about it. We've published on it. You know, it's it's known. I mean, we've known this. All we've time. known. Um, yeah. The... 
the the exchange in the Perlaska tapes concerns this, basically, that Perlaska is saying to prosecutors, yeah, the guy was extorting us and all of his buddies, too. And I was screaming blue murder inside the Secretary of State saying we should report these guys. We should file a legal complaint. We should try and get a judicial restraining order to freeze everything. And I was being ignored. And he mm-hmm. says, instead, what happened was we were told to negotiate with Tortsey and basically give him his money. And make yeah. it go away. And Perlaska says the order for that came from above. And the prosecutors say, what do you mean above? Do you mean the Pope? And he says, yeah, from the Pope. And the prosecutor intervenes and says, well, that's just not true. We talked to the Pope and the Pope told us that he never, you know, got involved and, you know, he met with Torti or whatever, but he was dragged into it by the Secretary of State. He didn't, you know. That he, mm-hmm. basically the Pope doesn't know what's going on inside the Secretary of State's financial dealings, except to the extent that the Secretary of State tell him in the first place. And he says the Pope told me he never told anyone to negotiate with Tortsey or you know pay him extortion money or anything like that. And so the defense have made this big thing saying there's been this off the record deposition of the Pope on this, and you can't have the sovereign interfering in the judicial process like this. Either the Pope has to give public evidence that we can all see or we have to throw this out now the prosecutor is saying we don't have to do anything of the kind what are you talking about we of course we talked to the pope about this the pope had to issue several of the search warrants that were used in the process of this investigation you know that's just part and part he's you know he's the supreme executive we can't do anything as prosecutors without his okay and in fact the pope's narrative and perlaska's narrative aren't mutually exclusive that and it's not wrong for the pope i mean it's not it's neither wrong nor illegal for the pope to say for the Pope to have said, no, let's just get out of this bad deal, give Tortsey his money. But the problem is, if the Pope did that, it becomes very difficult to say what. I mean, so the Pope can do that, right? Well, I mean, the Pope could do that, but no mm-hmm. one no one seems to be saying that's what he said, apart mm-hmm. from people furiously defending themselves against being on yeah, trial okay. at all. Um, what seems to be the obvious via media between the competing accounts is that Tortsey is holding the Secretary of State up. They are under pressure to make this problem go away in a hurry. The problem um, of Tortsey extorting them. Yes. And so they come up with the idea of, well, if we give him an audience with the Pope and the Pope says, you know, hey, let's we're, we're you know, thanks for all your help. And basically glad hands him a little. Maybe this guy will yield in front of the Pope and Got it. not openly extort the Holy Father to his face. Mm-hmm. And so they, you know, tell the Pope, this guy, you know, we're in a bit of a dispute with him. Uh, you know, there's a question about how much we should pay him. And, you know, it'd be really great if you could just have a meeting with him and take a picture and everything and blah, 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 blah. And the Pope says something like, well, you know, if we owe him money, pay him his money. You know, I don't know. And, you know, that seems to be what the the common account is here, is that the Pope didn't say negotiate with the extorter. Right. Um, The Pope said, if if we owe him money, pay him. Yeah. You know, I don't understand what the problem is. And then, so then people subsequently sort of use that to make it seem like the Pope was much more involved. Right. Is that? Yeah. And that the Pope of. was somehow authorizing and senating all of the nonsense that went before. Anyway, so we, that's what they're due to rule on when they reconvene next week. We'll see what they say. We'll see if we ever actually get to a trial and out of the pretrial phase. I hope uh-huh. we will. But sure. um, I got to tell you, <laughs> the, the Perlaska tapes make for great viewing and they certainly keep your interest in the case. And we will and we will put it in the show notes, dear listeners, if you two would like to Look, watch. And if anyone doesn't know who any of these people are, I I did a long, long yeah, timeline for you this week, week because mm-hmm. I love you and I want you all to know what's going on. 
Yeah, and uh, and so yeah, you can read at pillarcatholic.com. And it's very uh, when Ed said that he made a very long timeline about the about the about the case. I I was worried Ed when you told me that that it was going to be um, in, interminable and insufferable. To be perfectly honest, but it's actually readable, interesting, and really quite funny. I know it was not the timeline I wanted to write at all. <laughs> the one I wanted to write would have been like. Ten times the length and have footnotes and attachments and I mean know. it's still pretty long, but I mean the question that most people are asking is is effectively when you plan to write a book on the Vatican finance because I think a lot of people like if you wrote a if you wrote a book that was a, a had a narrative that people could move through maybe followed a character or something like that through the whole thing um, you know I, I think a lot of people want to understand it well it's super dramatic and has all kinds of interesting things in it like spies and blackmail and hopes and stuff um and nobody knows it that i know better than you so i mean the question is when when do you plan to write a book about it never why because nobody reads the the hard-hitting journalism that we write on this i'm not going to (laughs) waste months of my life grinding out a book that no one will buy (laughs) i don't have that kind of time if you think that you would buy a book from ed on the um on the vatican finance scandal you should let him know that or I don't know. You know what? If you uh, – yeah, let him know that or leave a review of the podcast in the podcast app that you, you – in the app that you used to listen to the podcast. Leave a review for the podcast in which you let Ed know that you would read a book on the Vatican finance scandal or um, or otherwise let Ed know. And Ed, like how many people do I have to get promising to read the book before you agree to write it? I um, – A thousand? I tell you what. I have a list of three people who have routinely denied me interview requests. If two out of the three of those people agree to sit with me for a a significant period of time to contribute to the book, I'll do it. Now, here's what I would propose, because, you know, those are people who know your byline and don't love it because they're the people who are involved in this. No, not necessarily. Some of them are just people who are involved. Who are they? Tell us who they are. I would do it if I could get Cardinal Pell, Cardinal Betchew, and Libero Maloney. What if I, what if we get a research assistant who doesn't have your byline to interview them? How would you feel about that? Not at all. I don't trust anyone to ask the right questions except myself. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, here's hoping. Here's hoping. So Cardinal Pell, Libero Maloney, and Cardinal Betchew, all, th- all three most likely Pillar Podcast listeners, if you are indeed listening. <laughs> well, I know Cardinal Betchew reads. I know Cardinal Betchew's a reader. <laughs> of the of the Pillar? Of the Pillar. Well, we get occasional correspondence. Yeah, we do get occasional correspondence from his attorneys letting us know that he's read various stories of ours and did not like them. <laughs> what I want to talk about now, Ed, is something that we haven't covered at the Pillar in um, uh, as a piece of news, but which has been in the news a fair amount over the past couple of days. Um, it is... Because we have not covered it at the pillar, I don't know all of the details kind of about how it emerged. It's it's a policy from the Diocese of Marquette, Michigan, that's actually dated from July of this year. So that's why I say I don't quite know when the policy was publicized or why it has risen to prominence over the past couple of days. But a policy from the Diocese of Marquette, Michigan, has sort of risen to prominence over the past couple of days um, about, uh, effectively about... Um, I thought Marquette was in Wisconsin. No, Marquette is the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I thought that was Gaylord. No, Gaylord, which they pronounce Gaylord, is um, Gaylord is kind of the 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 top of the mitten, if you will. Oh, um, yeah. As I understand it, um, and Michiganders, I'm sure will correct us, but as I understand it, Gaylord is 
the top of the the mitten. And then um, Marquette is when I say the upper peninsula. I know you're. I don't know if how much American geography you learn in school. I um, learned in when I was in grade school before we moved to London. I learned the fifty nifty United States song, <laughs> and that's pretty much the full extent. Okay, so um, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, you know, jets off of Minnesota, and uh, is, is uh, you know between Lake uh, Lake Michigan and then I don't know Lake Superior and Lake Huron, probably or something like that. Um, uh, at any rate. Um, the Diocese of Marquette is the Upper Peninsula of of, of Michigan, which okay. is, yeah, okay. So this policy was promulgated in July, but it has sort of got, made a fair amount of headlines over the past couple of days. There was a Washington Post story about it just, I think, yesterday, and I've seen it all over social media. And it is a policy about um, the sacraments of initiation. Well, it's, it's entitled... An Instruction on Some Aspects of the Pastoral Care of Persons with Same-Sex Attraction and Gender Dysphoria. Uh, it's titled, Created in the Image and Likeness of God. And um, it, it is what it says it is. It's, it, it, it begins with the sort of guidelines on um, pastoral care um, for, for people who identify as gay or trans, and um, uh, the, the principles of pastoral care, and then it talks about the meaning of human sexuality. And, 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 uh, and then the part that has really made headlines is then it has some... Um, instructions. Uh, they're, they're, for canonical reasons, they're not technically enormous, but it essentially has some guidelines for um, the sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, and first communion in the Diocese of Marquette, which have made headlines because um, they seem to say that a person who identifies as trans um, is unable to be baptized. And indeed, they say a person who publicly... Here, I'm going to read from them. A person who publicly identifies as a different gender than his or her biological sex or has attempted gender transitioning may not be baptized, confirmed, or received into full communion in the church unless the person has repented. Repentance does not require reverses the physical changes to the body that the person has undergone, um, although it doesn't say what it does require. Then it says the experience of incongruence in one's sexual identity is not sinful if it does not arise from the person's free will, nor would it stand in the way of Christian initiation. However, deliberate, freely chosen, and manifest behaviors to redefine one's sex do constitute such an obstacle. So again, a person who identifies as a different gender other than his or her biological sex or has attempted, quote, gender transitioning may not be baptized, confirmed, or received into full communion in the church unless the person has repented. And then it says repentance doesn't require reversing physical changes to the body, although it doesn't say what repenting is. And then it says experiencing, you know, gender incongruity or sexual identity incongruity is not sinful if it doesn't arise from a person's free will doesn't stand in the way of Christian initiation, but deliberate, freely chosen, and manifest behavior to redefine one's sex do constitute such an obstacle. And that has made a lot of made a lot of headlines. There's some confusion of terms in what you just yeah. read to me. What people have asked me, what I want to talk about is um what people have asked me, and maybe they've reached out to ask you too, is like, is this canonically valid? Is this canonically possible? What is this well, mean canonically and what doesn't it and so, so i think it would be good to talk we, about that for a little yeah bit. but before we do that can i just can this may just end up being your interpretive take on the thing but it that <laughs> i don't want to do that well okay i'm just saying that the the language you just read me um seems to ping pong back and forth between the language uh using the language of sex and the language of gender i noticed that as well so it's my understanding that in the commonly used um, sort of modern psychological profession as well as the sort of social discourse sex and gender are separated and treated as if they were distinct 
Um, but this, if I'm not mistaken, um, would seem to be, although it's using the language of both sex and gender, it is treating them as the same thing. So when it speaks of um, tr- it's, um, procedures to change one's gender, what it means is procedures aimed at um, purporting to change one's biological sex, as I assume. What we're talking or the, about, or the phys- their physical, you know, appearance. So, like, right, but I, but having I, their okay. Well, so but there's but there's two things here. I would say because one would suggest to me a sort of quasi medical surgical intervention to attempt to render a person anatomically appearing of a different sex than they were. Whereas you could say external actions taken to present as a different gender could simply be a matter of dress or public presentation. Yeah, this has attempted. Um, gender transitioning, you know, I, I guess the question is, does that mean that they have had a surgery? Yeah, a surgery to, like, make their body look different from the way that it did look? Or does that mean that they dress, you know, in a way that is different, you know, that, that, that a, a person who is a male dresses as, as a female and says that his name is Lucy and well, these kind of things? Is, yeah, it's not clear whether they mean a surgical thing or, or not. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, it's what I'm getting at. And I mean, because also one, I mean... Um, I, it would be my expectation that um, a surgical intervention would not um, be something that you actively continue to do. It's uh, something that was done. Yeah. In other words. Yeah. Whereas, but this speaks of continuing to would strike me as it, it presumes, or at least it implies um, a sort of ongoing set of active behavior. Does that make sense? Yeah, although I think when they say... I'm not trying to nitpick, but I mean, if we're going to give no, a sort of legal really understanding get, of this, it's important to understand. Yeah. I think when they say re- repentance does not require reversing the physical changes to the body that the person has undergone, when they talk about undergone, I think what they mean there is having had surgery. Like if, right. you, had a, if you had a surgery to make to reconstruct your, you know, your, your genitals, you don't have to have a surgery to put them back, which I think often is, is impossible. I, I do think that's what they mean. Right. If that's I, what you're I suspect it is too. I'm just, I, I'm, there's going to be, I suspect a lot of, um, a lot of gray area, a lot of ambiguity in this conversation. So I just wanted to define terms as well as we could. Before yeah. I think that's, I think that's a good idea. Um, the question that I have been asked the most is kind of, can, can you know? Can the bishop do this? And um, and that's a question we can talk about. Should the bishop do this? Is not a question that I that I think we have a particular expertise to talk about. Um, but I think the question that I've mostly gotten is like effectively, does the bishop have the authority to make a, pol- a norm of this kind? Right. Well, so what are we talking about here? The bishop is not, and it's my understanding legally, the bishop cannot come up with a an invalidating criteria for the administration of a sacrament. Um, that's that's just not within his remit um if you like conditions and circumstances for vali- for the valid uh celebration or conferral of a sacrament are reserved to the holy see only they can define it so it's not a question that um the bishop of marquette can say if you baptize a person who is transsexual transgender transgender like if you yeah if you baptize a transgender person i don't think you can say the baptism is invalid he no, can't he can't he did, yeah um nor do i think he can define an impediment can he well, I don't think so. So I, so notice that the bishop calls this an instruction, which is a certain kind of legal document in canon law, which clarifies the law, right? And so I was looking at canon 865. Um, oh, hang on. Yeah. Get my, get my book. Get your book. Okay, carry on. 
For an adult to be baptized, the person must have manifested the intention to receive baptism, have been instructed sufficiently about the truths of the faith and Christian obligations, and have been tested in the Christian life through the catechumenate. The adult is also urged to have sorrow for personal sins. I, I take this um, uh, instruction in the Diocese of Marquette, I, I guess, to be effectively, um, because an instruction clarifies the law, so there has to be some law that it is clarifying. And um, I, I I take it to, um, to be clarifying this sort of notion of being tested in the Christian life, um, you know, which suggests, which says, okay, there's, which I think what the bishop is trying to say is there's an incongruence between um, the Christian life and presenting yourself as a gender, which you're biologically not, or sex, which you're biologically not, or, or right. presenting yourself as a woman when you're born a man or a man when you're born a woman. Um, and, and therefore you, you have been tested in the Christian life and effectively um, not lived the Christian life is what I understand him to be saying. It could be. Um, I would... Uh, again, this is heavy inference, almost to the point of speculation. But I would say yeah. it's also possible that this relates more to having been instructed sufficiently about the truths of the faith. Um, because well, that's, a, that's something about the um, that's I guess sufficiently. It could be it could be clarified on sufficiently, but instruction is something that is given to you. Um, you know, so it would more, in a certain way, be a judgment of the instructor than about the than the person. For, well, in terms of okay, that. I, would, I would argue that you are insufficiently instructed in the Christian faith if you believe that you are ready to seek baptism at the same time. Hold out that it is possible through external interventions or means to, in fact, change change your your sex. Okay. Yeah, um, you've you've missed a fundal point, fundamental point of Christian anthropology about which the Church has been clear even in recent years. Um, under Pope Francis, the church has been extremely clear about mm -hmm. this. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that if you are saying, I would like to be Catholic, I would like to be baptized, but I also believe it is possible that I um, am actually a woman, although I was born in a man's body, or I am actually a man, although I was born in a woman's body, but my true essential nature is in fact other to my biological sex, I would say that that could point to a deficiency in instruction in the truths of the Christian religion. It, it could. I mean, the complicating factor is it could also, and I think the bishops have said this a lot, it could also point to um, a psychological problem, right? That having the sense of being a different... Well, um, so having, the church doesn't say that the different condition thing. of gender dysphoria isn't real. Right. The I suppose question says, is right, whether right. or not you can... How, how you ought to respond to it, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's perfectly mm -hmm. possible for a person to say, I feel as though I, I am, right. I, I should have been born a man or a woman, um, and I wasn't that that the the church doesn't say that that internal feeling gender um, dysphoria is false or doesn't exist. What the church does say is that may be your real psychological condition. However, the empirical truth of the matter is you are not secretly a man or woman born in the wrong body. You your body and your sex that you were born with is an essential part of your created nature, that the church does not believe in the separation of soul and body, that you are created as one intrinsic being, that Christianity is an extremely fleshy religion, that the created world is not something separate other, you know, there's not this Gnostic distinction between the sort of, you know, true spiritual self and the, and the flawed physical reality. That's why we believe in the resurrection of the body. I mean, you know, this, yeah. your created self matters mm -hmm. um, and it's not accidental. 
So I, it, it's again, it's not to say that the church says if you if you believe there's such a psychological condition as gender dysphoria, then you can't be Catholic. No, on the contrary, but what the church is saying is that you can't say the correct response to gender dysphoria is to remake yourself in the sex which you were quote unquote supposed to have been. Right, and you can't affirm. You know, at, at baptism, you affirm that you hold to the teachings of the church, and you can't at the same time affirm that you hold to the teachings of the church and say, you know, fundamentally that that, that this uh, m- way of being created is alterable. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, the, again, the, the, the it would fundamentally suggest that the way that God created you is wrong, which we don't do. I think where a lot of people... So I, I, I think that's true. I think where a lot of people have um, kind of raised... And there are a lot of people who would just say, well, there are a lot of people who have raised issue about this, who have criticized this precisely because they don't agree with that, right? I mean, they would say already, um, you know, who, who is the church to say that, uh, you know, a person's experience is not real or the way that a person chooses to respond, which is not what the church is saying, or the way that a person chooses to respond to their experience by having this surgery... Um, is not a valid way of choosing to, and referring to themselves according to their perceived gender is, is, is not a valid or, or, or legitimate or just way to respond to it, right? And, and in a certain way, that is, you know, the, the bishop in this pastoral letter is quite clear that is not a, a, a way to respond to it. And the church's general position has been, you know, no, indeed, to treat gender dysphoria, which is a, you know, real thing, um, is not to deny the created nature of the person. Right. Um, and so in a certain way, that, but there are people who would read this already and say, well, that in itself is um, bigoted and um, and wrong and, and you know, backwards and the church needs to get with the times. Well, the church is they, not going to get with the times. Pope Francis right. has been I very clear. Wanted, and, no, what I'm saying, the church is objection to that and this, you know, why can't, why do you have to invalidate people's experience? And da, da, da. It's like, well, because the church doesn't believe in existential relativism. Yeah. That it, this is fundamentally, the church rejects the mentality of the enlightened, this I think, therefore I am. My experience and the world and reality is the only true metric of it is that which I know and consider and think from within myself. That the, you know, we do not have an anthropocentric view of creation or existence. That we are centered on God. That God is the author of and center of all creation. And that who we are is defined by him, not by our experience. Yeah. Okay, so the first people, the, the the first set of people who would object to this would be people who just say, "Well, the church is wrong about this." Then there would be another set of people who would say, and this is kind of what we saw in the in the Eucharistic Communion debate. Actually, there would be another set of people who would, might say, "I agree with um, what the church teaches here, um, but the sacraments are not uh, for the perfect. The sacraments are not prizes for the perfect, and it is wrong of the church to prohibit from the sacraments people who have not reached." intellectual assent to the church's teaching or moral perfection. And so it's it's not, you know, effectively pastoral or evangelically appropriate to prohibit or impede people from the sacraments who um, don't hold what the church teaches or who live in a way that is contrary to the teaching of the church, right? And we saw that said consistently in the Eucharistic coherence document. So that would be, I think, another set of people who would object to that. Now, the response to that would be, I think, you know, the... the, the that the, the church has said from the, I mean, that embedded in the rite of Christian initiation from the very beginning of the life of the church has been an affirmation of the church's teaching authority and an assent to the things which she teaches. That this is a part and parcel with the notion of becoming a Christian. And so the idea that one wouldn't be asked or expected to do that at the time when one was baptized is just contrary to the church's historic understanding of, of baptism and, and, uh, 
and practice of Christian initiation. Well, and again, uh, it, initiation. It, it, it would represent also, you know, you referenced the sort of communion debate and things. It, it would represent the same sort of talismanic approach to the sacraments, which is the, the important thing is not that the treating of the sacraments is this profound reality that fundamentally represents, in the words of the old catechism, an outward sign of an inward grace, um, that to treat them as sort of just, you know, magic rituals. Like the important thing is you get the magic thing. That you get the magic mm-hmm. water, you get the you know you get the magic wafer. That you know you you do the you do the talismanic thing, and what you believe, accept, reject, whatever. Well, that's you know that's internal for you. It doesn't really matter. And what the Pope has said is, and he said this in relation to the communion debate, is that you can't publicly affirm communion and um, a communion with the Church in belief and in reality, while at the same time rejecting it. That that's not how this works. That's not what the sacraments are for. That the sacraments are not there to paper over um, the cracks between an individual or a group of people and actual communion with the church and ascent of faith. That the sacraments are there to embody it. The sacraments are there to be a, um, a a very powerful manifestation of that full communion. And you know, you, I mean, we've talked about this um, on the podcast before. I think that communion with the church comes in three ways: in sacraments, in faith, and in Hierarchy. Governance. Governance, mm-hmm. effectively. Um, and we've said, you know, it's, this is a tripod. You take one of the legs off the stool, the thing falls over. You can't right. You can't just say, well, yeah, I want the sacrament, but I don't want the faith. Right. Or I want the sacraments and the faith, but I reject the authority of the church. Like, you can't that, – that's not how that works. Right. That's – you know, the church offers you no guarantees of salvation if you are going to pick and choose the essential aspects of communion with the church. Right. So that's the response to that objection. Then there's the – then there might be – then there's the last um, – potential objection to um, to the way in which this document is framed um, or the last potential objection to the to the thing which the document says which is that there are certain ambiguities here that cause problems and this is one which I might I myself would say yeah I think I, I see what the document was going for and at the same time I don't really see what it's getting at um, and, and here's what I mean by that um, uh, yeah a person who publicly identifies as a different gender than his or her biological sex or has attempted gender transitioning may not be baptized confirmed or even received into full communion in the church unless the person has repented repentance does not require reversing the physical changes to the body that the person has undergone so a person um, has had a has had a, a, a sex change a gender transitioning surgery as they would call it so that they um, their biological sex is male and now they present themselves as a woman and They've had their body altered to look like a woman and, and they identify as a woman or a trans woman. Um, unless the person has repented, it's not entirely clear to me exactly what that means or what's being asked of the person. Um, and so I think that's a place where sort of just pastorally or practically to the extent that this issue comes up in in um, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which is a, a, an interesting kind of question. But to the extent that this issue comes up in the inter, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, I think there is a real question about what is meant here about the person repenting and and what is asked of them in order to enter the the, the, the church. Yeah, I I'm I'm I have a lot of questions about the use of the word repented here. I mean, for a start, it does it not is, mean sacramental. It does not necessarily mean sacramental confession because well, it can't mean sacramental confession if you're not a Catholic. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, if you're I, not baptized, it, it presumably would not involve a public manifestation of conscience because we don't do that in the church, except right. in extremely narrow um, circumstances, right. like you've made a false accusation uh, against someone in the context of sacramental confession. Yeah. Um, so I, 
I don't think I would I would not assume and I would certainly hope it is not to be meant that they are suggesting that a person who has been living uh, as either a man or a woman despite being of the other sex uh, is obliged to sort of stand up and say it's not really not really I you know I you know that would be it's not we don't like I said we don't do public manifestations of conscience in the church and how it works um, yes. So it's hard to know. I, so, I, so I presume this means. So, I mean, this is a document well, for. Re- I mean, the other pastors, thing is, repent right? of what is the other thing that comes to my mind? Because I mean, it seems to me, at least from what I've read, that a a sizable and certainly growing proportion of people who go through these uh, surgeries and things uh, have have it performed on them as children, uh, usually under the uh, authority of people in the medical profession and or their parents and so it's not something that they've necessarily been able to give their full assent to so are they supposed to repent what was done to them yeah so that obviously that would not be required right or there's also a question though about a person's sort of freedom right so a person who has undergone that who has undergone this kind of thing you know it, uh, for a lot of this and this is where the, this is where i think you know there's a there there <laughs> there's not clarity where i would wish there would be clarity in this although i see what it's trying to do because for a lot of this like so many things those questions are meted out in pastoral practice, right? And a pastor sort of evaluating the, talking with a person about the particular facts and circumstances of their particular reality and the things which led them to that place and the things which happened before that, and then making, you know, judgments effectively, right? And those things are guided in the framework of, of general principles, but sort of can't be, I don't think, um, re- reduced easily to one course of action consistently. No, um, I mean as a general principle, the the general into the question, the general yields to the particular, right? So I would assume that even if what the intention here is is to create a kind of um, general first presumption in a circumstance, that would of course always be expected to yield to the particular circumstances of the individual. Yeah. So you, so let's take an, an example of this from the law. So you don't baptize an infant unless you have what, Ed? Uh, a spes fundata, that they will be raised in the Christian faith. That's right. A founded hope that they will be raised in the Christian faith. And um, there are any number of, um, you know, circumstances of the parents, which would, might call into question the possibility of um, a founded hope, you know, call into question the possibility of a founded hope, and then any number of mitigating circumstances which might resolve those questions, right? So um, the parents don't practice the faith, and one of them uh, hates the faith, but, um, you know, one is lukewarm about the faith, and one absolutely hates the faith, and so you think, well, you don't have a founded hope, and then you realize the one who's lukewarm has extremely devout grandparents, and, you know, or has herself extremely devout parents, and the grandparents of the child, and they have an intention to raise the child in the faith and to give them. And you might reach a founded hope, right? Well, and it's, this, it is for this reason that you have the institution of sponsors, baptismal sponsors, right. commonly mm-hmm. called yeah. godparents, is mm-hmm. to provide where necessary that founded hope. The possibility hope. of a founded hope, right? So, um, you know, there or the you know the one parent is not Catholic and the other parent is lukewarm about their Catholicity, but um, you know the one who's not Catholic is the sort of person who takes seriously her commitments. And so if the child is baptized, she promises she'll take him to mass every week. And she seems like the sort of person who means it. Right. And so, you know, the pastor kind of overcomes that the lack of sort of religious practice on the part of the parents, and then it lands at a founding hope. These things are meted out in the particulars. And so, um, you know, I think where a lot of people have objected to this is um, 
they have read in this something which is definitive, in which there's not a meeting out of particulars. And um, that is, um, I, I would say to some extent, that's the fault of the text and that the text doesn't sort of de- definitively say, hey, a lot of this stuff has to be meted out in the particulars. Rather, it just says, unless the person has repented, which is a term that leaves open a lot of ambiguity and these kinds of things. And at the same time, I think it's probably the fault of, uh, I think there have probably been a lot of rash readings in part that are sort of bad faith readings at the same time. Right. Is that fair? I think so. There's, I, in any given situation, I'm always willing to, I'm always willing, in fact, disposed to believe there's bad faith readings going around at some point. <laughs> yeah. I think there are probably bad faith readings. And at the same time, there are real questions in the text about what some of these things mean and you can sort of get a sense of what they're getting at, but um, there, there's, there are certain places where the text is not, you know, specific, like this question of what repenting is, um, or deliberately freely chosen and manifest behaviors to redefine one's sex do constitute an obstacle to, to Christian initiation. Um, so, you know, the notion of redefining one's sex, you know, if one says, I am doing these things because I am biologically a male, um, but I... Um, believe that I can change my sex, you know, biologically, I can change my sex into being a female, yeah, that constitutes such an obstacle. To what extent does the person have to, you know, is the text saying that the person has to sort of embrace the ordinary ways in which we see masculinity expressed in contemporary American culture in order to be Baptist? I don't think that's the intention of the no, bishop. No, I don't think you can tell um, a biological woman that you can't wear flannel shirts in combat boots. Right, I don't think, right, exactly. Right, exactly. I don't think you can. I don't, I, I don't, imagine that the bishop intends to. Um, again, I think it's a place where the text probably would benefit from more clarity and where there's probably been, you know, readings that are taking it at that uh, sort of intention, uh, you know, just sort of on first read. I'm, yeah, I, this is, there, there has been very little um, policy engagement with the pastoral care of People with what we're calling trans issues these days, I guess. Yeah, people who. Yeah. Um, and I think part of the reason why there's been so little concrete, thoughtful policy about this is because it is an extremely thorny issue, and people don't want to grab a third rail and try and wrestle with it. Um, but I think the the more um, the church tries to just basically look the other way and hope that it goes away. I, I don't think it's going to help. I don't think it's going to yeah, work. So here's the bishop sort of jumping in and saying, here's what I think. Here are the principles. And, and okay, good. I think that's, um, th- this, is, this is a place where the where bishops need to give guidance to their priests and, you know, priests need to have an understanding that this is something which may well arise in the parish. Um, you know, at the same time, it, it's not only that it's thorny in the sense that it's like politically sensitive. It also requires the ability to make distinctions, uh, very, very careful and very precise distinctions, which the church has sort of been doing with regard to like marriage. So with regard to marriage, sex, sex outside of marriage, the relationship between those things and Eucharist, um, you know, civil marriage, divorce, remarriage, the church has been thinking about those things for a very long time. And so as a consequence of that, you have, you know, kind of familiaris consortio expressing a very like a very specific set of responses to questions about ecclesial communion, Divorce, remarriage, sex, and the Eucharist, um, and you know w- what is expected and, and and not expected of a person. And then, um, in a more statistic, you have another set of reflections on that, which um, takes a very different tack and raises other questions and and and, and provokes controversy, right? Um, in part because there are parts of it that are not especially clear about what is meant, and that has provoked a, a great deal of controversy. Um, 
But you have, in either case, sort of this long tradition of the church sort of thinking about marriage, divorce, sex, the Eucharist, and ecclesial communion, um, and being able to therefore be very precise in her language. And it seems to me when I read something like this that um, there is need of the same kind of sort of serious theological work and then serious canonical work that follows that theological work and serious philosophical work to define terms well, to define limits well, to define, you know, to define, to, to give good, clear and good guidance on pastoral practice because it is not just a politically sort of um, uh, hot button issue, but because it's an extremely complicated issue because um, biological sex is a reality. The expressions of biological sex are both a reality and also a cultural, you know, influenced by cultural and, so, and social factors, the degree to which those things interplay with complex psychological issues and at the same time interplay with sort of the rights of the person and the, you know, universal call to holiness. Th- those are real issues. And, and when, when I read something like this, I think my, the, the, the clearest takeaway that I have is there's a lot more work to be done on this. I would agree with that. That we're effectively 500 years ahead of, ahead of this on marriage. At least. Know, divorce, sex, ecclesial community, these kinds of things, than we are on these issues, which are brand... You know, I think we're more than 500 years ahead. Yeah. So, for me, the takeaway... I guess the reason you, I bring nope, all that nope, up is... You've already given your takeaway. You can't have two takeaways. Right. Do you have another takeaway, Ed? Nope. It was a good takeaway. Okay. That's good. all the time we're giving to this. Okay. That's all the time we're giving to this. I said and that because we are, in fact, at time. That's why I'm saying. Yeah, that is just about all the time that we have for today, um, except... Um, Ed, did you know that today is the 55th anniversary of the airing of uh, the first airing of Charlie Brown Christmas on television? I did not, but that is a day worth marking. Yeah, so we are recording this podcast on Thursday, the 9th of December, and um, uh, the 9th of December, 55 years ago, was the first airing of Charlie Brown Christmas. And in light of that, um, knowing how much, Ed, you love um, Charlie Brown Christmas, I have devised a game for you that is... A little bit Charlie Brown and a little bit just Christmas stuff. I love both Charlie Brown and Christmas stuff. This sounds like fun. Hit me. Um, So we are going to play a game called Greater or Lesser. um, And um, if you want to play along at home, the way the game works is that I will give Ed a list of three things. And uh, he will rank them um, either according um, uh, uh, according to his preference for them or his preference against them. Their greaterness or their lessedness. Um, so he will either say, for example, A is better than B is better than C, um, or A is less than B is less than C. Um, do you understand everybody? Well, I do. I invented the game. Yes, you did. And, um, yes, you did. And now you're going to play it. So Ed, we are going to play Charlie Brown and other things, Christmas, greater or lesser. Are you ready? I'm not just ready. I'm excited. Okay. Some of these things will be Charlie Brown-esque and I, I, I didn't. Make a whole Charlie Brown list. So some of these things will just be Christmassy. Okay. Okay, Ed. Charlie Brown, Lucy, and Linus. Um, okay. Uh, Linus is greater than... Lucy is greater than Charlie Brown. Linus is greater than... Lucy is greater than Charlie Brown. Yes. Okay. Linus is, in my opinion, possibly the only really well-adjusted peanut. Okay. That is a guy who's totally comfortable in his own skin and at the yeah. same time mm-hmm. is empathetic and caring and not obnoxious and yeah, thoughtful. Yeah, because Lucy's totally comfortable in her own skin. She's just... That's why Lucy comes yeah. second. Is Lucy mm. Lucy may be 100% id, but she she is also totally Lucy. And so you gotta, you got to respect that. you got to hope she'll grow out of it a little bit, but you got to respect it. And Charlie Brown is the guy that everybody 
as in art, so in life, when you know you you love the guy, but you also just like God, just you know, get a grip, man. Yeah. Okay. And also, I, would, I too would pull the football every single time because you know what? <laughs> know he would. keeps going. I you know you would you would with no compunction whatsoever. Okay, Christmas movies. Little Women, Home Alone, and Lethal Weapon. Um, oh, this is easy. Uh, we're ranking them as Christmas movies, I assume. I'm giving you a list of Christmas movies. You rank them. All right. Um, Home Alone is greater than Die Hard is... Lethal Weapon is what I said. Oh, did you say Lethal Weapon? Lethal Weapon is also a Christmas movie, if Die Hard is one. I am not aware of Lethal Weapon's Christmas status. Yeah, there's some Christmassy stuff in there. Okay. Uh, I, my ranking remains unchanged. Home Alone is greater than lethal weapon is it's certainly greater than little women i understand that there have been multiple iterations film iterations of little women i don't know which one to you to which one you are referring but they are all garbage because little women is a garbage story <laughs> and the source material is insipid and boring and bourgeois and introspective and self-obsessed okay. and all the characters are insufferable now, this list is three christmas time activities or oh, i didn't Advent even get to talk about how much i love home alone <laughs> you should have started with that. Home okay, Alone was, no, Home Alone was uh, uh, filmed okay. in the this, North Chicago know, suburb in which I lived from. at yep. the time I lived there. Like, this this uh, list is uh, three Christmas time activities. Um, a, a living nativity, a progressive epiphany dinner. Do you know what that is? No. Oh, just as the three kings went you know, from place to place in search of the Lord, there's a custom in some cultures of having a progressive dinner on Epiphany to remember the journey of the three kings in which you have... Oh, so you start like one person's house and move courses. Cocktails move at house. one person's house, appetizers at the next person's Ooh. house, salads at the next person's house. Okay. Soups at the next person's house. Okay. Um, a pasta at the next person's house, meat dish at the next person's house, nuts and um, drinks at the next person's house, followed by dessert at the last person's house. Okay. It sounds like a lot of courses. I can't think it'd be awesome. Um, or um, I don't know if you've ever been to one, Ed, but my favorite kind of Advent party is a Gaudete Rager, a Gaudete Sunday um, blowout. Uh, more information, please. Uh, I tend to Gaudete's... grill a lot of beef on Gaudete Sunday because when the Which church Gaudete says Gaudete, mean? I say how high. But um, yes, right. So it... Gaudete means what, Ed? Uh, rejoice. And in what ca- in what uh, what what case? Uh, it's the imperative. Right, exactly. So, what does the imperative mean when it is the case of re- say it? Say it in English as you as you take it in Latin. Um, Rejoice! Yeah, it is an it is a command. It, it is, is a command, yeah. right? Yeah. So, um, uh, a Gaudete rager is um, in which you invite many many people to perhaps tap a keg or um, open some spirits and have some fun rejoicing. I see. Okay. Well, then I would, I I would. Uh... I would say Epiphany Progressive Dinner. You made that sound incredibly fun and delicious, so yeah, I'm going to go with that. I, uh, is greater than a Gaudete Rager. Um, I don't know that anything I've ever done a Gaudete Sunday would be classified as a Rager, but I've certainly rejoiced the heck out of the Sunday on more than one occasion. Um, and I'll be honest with you, live cribs are boring to me. <laughs> I agree. It is, okay, you know, great. it's fun for the first 20 seconds. Oh, look how cute. And then it's like, Okay. Okay. Everybody got a picture? We can move on with our lives. That is a very good uh, That's a very good ranking. I, I think I'd agree with you. Okay. This next category, Ed, is a category that I call Christmas light power-ups. Okay. So you put Christmas lights in your house. Fine. Great. But there are some people who go above and beyond, and they, they add real um, accoutrements to their Christmas lights. They add things that really just take the whole thing, turn it up to 11, as it were. They're called um, heroes, J.D. Uh, they're called heroes. So here are three... 
So Christmas light power-ups, and I'll have to describe them a little bit. So the first are gigantic inflatables. I don't mean small inflatables. I mean a Santa or a polar bear as big as your freaking house. Or perhaps a dragon wearing a Santa hat. Perhaps a dragon wearing a Santa hat. Perhaps a pirate ship with Santa and elves crewing it. Do you know about the dragon across the street from me? Or did you just... I'm aware of the dragon across the street from you because you sent it to me, and I was thoroughly pleased by the entire way that played out. Okay, great. Um... Okay, so are you going to tell the story of the dragon across the street from you? Well, actually, I don't know even what you mean. There's a guy with a big inflatable dragon across the street from me. I don't even know what you. Oh, mean somebody sent that. me a thing. I thought it was you um, about someone had a giant inflatable dragon in their front lawn, and they got a snotty note from a neighbor saying, "I don't think that truly embodies Christmas. You shouldn't have <laughs> I don't a." Know about that. And so they true, went out and got four more in different colors, so they now have a row of inflatable dragons oh, no, in their I front lawn, and I, that was both festive and. Curmudgeonly, awesome. and I thoroughly approve of that kind of behavior. That's awesome. No, there, there's a very large dragon across the street from me, and it's with a, a nice display that has a reindeer and then a couple of Paw Patrol characters no, and some other no, things. No, Paw Patrol is evil. And, no. Okay, and my son Max is just crazy about the whole display, and so sometimes we'll see him just like with his nose pressed against the glass, or he'll he'll just leave the house and we know where to find him is at the thing. But my son Daniel, a couple of weeks ago, I told him, um, a long, elaborate story about St. George and a dragon because he asked me to tell him a story about a dragon, but I guess it was too real because he's been very scared about dragons ever since. And so, while in the past, he's literally like this thing he's been extremely nervous about it the past, past few weeks. Okay. Giant inflatables. Okay. Actual carolers. Okay. Or um, a private radio station with light synchronization. By that, I mean, have you ever been to a house that has... That's that's broadcasting music through a radio station you can listen to in your car, and the lights are synchronized to move with the music. I have I have never seen that. Oh, it's pretty cool. I mean, I don't want to tell you whether it's cooler than the other things, but if you see it, it's really quite cool. Okay, I'm going to say live carolers are greater mm-hmm. because they are. I mean, that's okay. commitment. That's you know, they're out in the cold. They're doing the thing live. You know. Yeah. Plus you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So live carolers are greater than this synchronized. Simulcast thing you're talking about seems like that's it's some effort. It's awesome if you can go see it. Yeah, it's yeah pretty that's, cool. I mean, you've you've gone to lengths there. I appreciate that. Everyone likes a good bit of pirate radio, so I'm mm. in favor of that. Uh, it's greater than giant inflatables, which I mean, I'm in favor of them. I, there are some people in my street who have an entire menagerie in their front yard of the giant inflatables, and my hats off to them. But I mean, let's be honest. This is this is the shortcut. Yeah, they're not in the same category. Yeah, I, I agree. You're not. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, nothing wrong with them, but you're this is entry level stuff. Nothing great about them either. Okay. Yeah. Schroeder, back to back to peanuts. Yep. Uh, Schroeder, pig pen, and peppermint patty. Okay. Uh, Schroeder is greater than peppermint patty is greater than pig pen. Um, Schroeder is a bit of a jerk and a misanthrope, and so I have a certain affinity for him. Um, he also occasionally has to put up with people being obnoxious around him while he's trying to do his thing with a piano. So, you know, I have, uh, I, I support, I salute him and support him in his attempts at focus. You have to put up with people when you're trying to play the piano? Uh, no, I don't. I, there's not a musical bone in my body. But, um, you know, trying to keep focus while you're hitting the keys, I, I understand the game there. So good for him. Um, Peppermint Patty is like Lucy. It's 100% id. Um, and, you know, you gotta you got to respect a kid that is just fully themselves. On the other hand, she is a bit of an overbearing jerk on occasion. Um, well, Marcy well, certainly doesn't think so. No. 
Um, but Marcy's a pushover. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, okay. don't get me wrong. As a friendship pairing, they work that way. And, you, you know, that's a real-life dynamic. Um, but in I, I would say Peppermint Patty is, is more redeemed than Lucy in the sense that Peppermint Patty, while she's completely steamrollers everyone that she comes into contact with, as does Lucy Peppermint Patty isn't necessarily being a jerk while she's doing it. She's, you know, pretty upbeat and positive and... So there's so that. Order is Schroeder, Pigpen, and Peppermint Patty. No, Peppermint Patty is second. Uh, Peppermint Patty is greater than Pigpen. Uh, take a bath, man. It's not like no one likes a smelly kid. It, it, mm-hmm. You know, just just do it. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. This is ways to consume Christmassy ways in which to consume booze. Um, there is balls. no wrong way to consume. No, booze I know you just get to rank them. Okay. You just get to rank them. Bourbon balls. Um, chocolate Baileys, by which I mean, um, you know, those little chocolates that are shaped like bottles and then they have like kind of, um, liqueur inside, you know what I yes. mean? Yeah. Okay. And then spiked eggnog, bourbon balls, chocolate Baileys, spiked eggnog. Okay. This is easy. Um, bourbon balls are superior, uh, greater than, uh, ba- you know, chocolate Baileys because bourbon is just superior to Baileys. Um, and both are superior to spiked eggnog because although I just said there is no wrong way to consume alcohol at Christmas, <laughs> eggnog is in fact the wrong way to consume alcohol at Christmas. I, I have a friend who I just learned the other day has never tried eggnog in her entire life. She is she is having a richer and more fulfilled existence for it. <laughs> the The experience of drinking eggnog only detracts. Mm-hmm. And it never really leaves you. I haven't had eggnog in probably twenty years, and I can st- it, the taste is still fresh in my mind. And I don't understand why someone would do that to themselves. Well, let's try if you want, hunter, shall we? if you and to all the people out there who are listening, who are saying eggnog is something I grew up with, it's delicious. Da 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 da. Why can't I have my creamy boozy treat at Christmas? You can. You're free. However, I would recommend have a brandy Alexander instead. Way better. All right, that sounds good. I think I will have a brandy Alexander. But first, let's have a palate cleanser. Um, Ed, Iberian ham, Virginia ham, or, because you're English, a York ham with Madeira sauce. Um, okay. Well, I actually have an Iberian ham in my fridge downstairs ready to go for Great. Gaudete Sunday. So my, my preference is, is clear and has already been laid in. Um, uh, this was versus Taylor ham, did you say? No, I said Virginia ham Virginia and then ham. A, um, a York ham with Madeira, which is an English kind of a way of eating ham that I presume... Is your kind of customary family? family I do way. love me some ham Stilton and a, a sweet wine of some kind. Yeah, that's um, that's a pretty winning combination. Although I don't know that you have to have it with a, uh, a particular ham. I think it's I I will go localish pride and say Virginia ham over your ham. All right, uh, all right. Now I hope you've given yourself enough time between that question and the next one because the next Ed is um, ranking your Christmas mass preferences between the following. Uh, midnight Mass, the 4 p.m. Um, Christmas Eve pageant vigil, by which I mean the 4 p.m. Mass at which children of the parish will be doing some sort of a thing, um, wearing, you know, um, sheets that are designed to look like the garb of the Holy Family, or uh, the back to 10 a.m. Christmas morning Mass, Midnight Mass, the 4 p.m. Christmas Eve pageant vigil, or the Pack to the Gills 10 a.m. Christmas morning Mass. Okay. Uh, again, no hesitation here. I am unapologetically and immovably a midnight mass kind of guy, preferably with a carol service immediately proceeding. Um, that's, it's quiet, it's dark, it's festive, it's solemn. I love it's it. It's the only way to do it, really. It's the only way to do it. If mm-hmm. you must, I would then um, say it's greater than the 
packed 10 a.m. Christmas Day because there, there is, I mean, it's Mass. All Masses are miraculous. Masses. Great, I realize I'm asking you to rank All Masses are miraculous. Um, but ranking Asking the- you to rank, Ed, the superiority of Masses makes me realize that effectively we may have just become a trad podcast um, in which ranking various forms of Mass is the number one sport. And uh, I can only assume. But anyway, in this in this particular narrow context, I would say is is greater than the packed 10 a.m. because there you still get all the miracles of Mass. And also there's the sort of general frisson of excitement of mm-hmm. Christmas morning with families and kids having fun. And, you know, that's nice. <sighs> and that is, that is some distance above the 4 p.m. Christmas Eve pageant vigil. That's 4 p.m. I mean, canonically, it is licit. Don't get me wrong. Um, but that's way too early for me. And uh, also, you know, it's like, really? I, you know, now, nah. I mean, it's great for the kids. Go to the pageant, give them their moment and take the pictures and everything. But I mean, don't you don't you want to go to mass on at midnight? Do the carols and everything? Really? Yeah, I mean, it's. I feel like a 4 p.m. Christmas Eve vigil is a little bit like when they used to do the Easter vigil at 10 a.m. on Saturday. <laughs> it's just like you know, I I accept that you can do this. No one's calling but it invalid. Really, yeah, but w- must you? Must you? Yeah, agreed. Uh, good choices all around, Ed. You've done a very good job, and you just have one more. Um, and this is a. You remember that we began with peanuts, and we will end with peanuts. Ed Woodstock, Spike, and rerun. Uh, Woodstock, of course, is... Is Snoopy's little bird friend. Spike is Snoopy's Arizona-based brother. I don't. A lot of people don't know Spike, but Spike I is... I didn't know Spike. No. Or maybe he's a cousin, actually. Spike is Snoopy's relative who lives in the desert. And I, I th- I'm starting to think he might be his cousin, although I had for a while thought that he was his brother. No, he is Snoopy's brother. I just checked it. He doesn't live in Arizona. In fact, he lives in the California desert. And rerun, a rerun is a... Poor Rerun. Rerun is the youngest Van Pelt. He's Linus and Lucy's little brother. And um, uh, Oh, yes, yes, yes. The, the plot line about Rerun was that he was always sort of forgotten and in the background and fading in the background. And then as art followed life, Rerun actually just was forgotten and faded into the background and had no more plot lines. So, um, but Rerun has some things going for him. So um, Spike, Woodstock, and Rerun. I will say Woodstock is greater than Rerun is greater than um, Spike. Woodstock was Woodstock's a great character. Woodstock is often the 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 reader or viewer proxy for dealing mm-hmm. with Snoopy's mm-hmm. insane antics. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I he's he's also a long-suffering friend to someone with a big personality who mm-hmm. insists on having their own way about things and, you know, I get that. And uh and no 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 love for Spike. That's a peripheral character to the point where I didn't even recognize him. Do you know who Woodstock is named for? Uh, oh, I used to know this. Oh, um, <sighs> no, I used to know, but I it, I it has I have forgotten that information. There was this. It's kind of weird, but there was this, I guess, sort of festival, like a kind of outdoor concert in 1969 outside of Woodstock, New York, that I guess was kind of. Well known for a while, and for some reason, Charles Schultz decided to name. Oh, it was named um, after the pre-existing bird. Yeah, so the character had been around for a while with no name, and then after Woodstock, Charles ah, Schultz gave the name. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to say I wouldn't have thought he was named after the music festival because he was. Yeah, he happened yeah, way before. He pre-existed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
Well, Ed, you've done a very good job, and we have learned far more about you than I think you would prefer for anyone to know about you. And for that, um, I both apologize and commend you. And uh, listeners, thank you for being with us as ever. And if you like the work that we do here, don't forget that we do the work that we do here because you support it and um, think that it is work worth paying for. PillarCatholic.com slash subscribe. Ed's baby needs some Christmas eggnog. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon, and Gaudete. Gaudete.